And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host for this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we look at manufacturing through both a telescope and a microscope. We look at the big headlines, uh, the big economic and political headlines of the day. There have been many, and they matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance. But at this time of evolutionary and often revolutionary change in the very structure and the very nature of what manufacturing is and what manufacturing does, we have to go deeper. And the key word here is new, new technology, new science, new markets, new economic thinking. And we are here to help our audience understand how all of that is going to lead to a new day for the U.S. manufacturing sector. Throughout the year, this first year of Manufacturing Matters, we have brought you the guests who have been the best in their field, the most knowledgeable in their field. And today is no exception. Today is our second two-guest show. And it is my great pleasure to have Sridhar Kodha and Tom Mahoney uh, with me. These gentlemen came to my attention vis-a-vis an excellent Wall Street Journal article that they published on November, Saturday, November 16th. And in it, they talked about what has been a longstanding and I believe a growing concern, and that is if U.S. manufacturing is offshoring production, is it also offshoring innovation? And is the offshoring phenomenon of manufacturing thereby killing the U.S. capacity for creating valuable, long-term growth-enhancing innovation? I'm going to ask them to summarize their article, and then I have some questions. And I think we're going to have a very dynamic discussion on a very serious matter. These two gentlemen are both with the Alliance for Manufacturing Foresight which is a federally funded national think tank focused on accelerating technological innovation to enhance U.S. manufacturing competitiveness. Competitiveness is their concern. Sridhar Kola is the Herrick Professor of Engineering, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Michigan. He is the founding director of the Alliance for Manufacturing Foresight, often called M-Foresight. Between 2009 and 2012, Professor Kota served as the Assistant Director for Advanced Manufacturing at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. He played an instrumental role in conceptualizing and championing the establishment of the National Manufacturing Innovation Institute. He also orchestrated implementation of the National Robotics Initiative and the National Digital Engineering and Manufacturing Initiative. As the founding executive director of M Foresight from 2015 to the present, he convened thought leaders from industry, academia, and government at numerous workshops and roundtable discussions across the nation to identify emerging technologies and cross-cutting challenges in advanced manufacturing. Uh, Professor Kota authored over 200 technical papers, 30 patents, 
on bio-inspired engineering systems and soft robotics. He is the recipient of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers Machine Design Award, the Leonardo da Vinci Award, Outstanding Educator Award, and University of Michigan Regents Award for Distinguished Public Service and the Distinguished University Innovator Award. He's the founder and CEO of Flexus, Inc., that developed and flight tested the world's first modern aircraft with shape-changing wings demonstrating significant reduction in noise and fuel consumption. Tom Mahoney has over three decades of experience in the fields of industrial management, international competition, technology development and adoption, economic analysis, and entrepreneurship. His combination of economic expertise and hands-on business management skills have proven effective in providing strategic and technical advice to manufacturers and governments worldwide. Currently, Mr. Mahoney is, is Associate Director at M4 Site. Right. He designs and manages major studies tapping bro broad national expertise. He co-authored Ensuring American Manufacturing Leadership Through Next Generation Supply Chains, Cybersecurity for Manufacturers, Securing the Digitized and Connected Factory, Manufacturing Prosperity, a Bold Strategy for National Wealth and Security, and Reclaiming America's Leadership in Advanced Manufacturing. He began his career with the U.S. National Academy of Sciences Consulting Arm and, National Re and the National Research Council. As the Executive Director of the Manufacturing Studies Board, Mr. Mahoney led teams of senior executives and academics to strengthen public policy and private management decisions in areas affecting uh, U.S. competitiveness. His expertise in U.S. technological competitiveness led to his appointment as chief economist and senior policy advisor in New Zealand's Ministry of Research, Science, and Technology. Now, let's see. as an entrepreneur, Mr. Mahoney successfully co-founded and funded a technology-based startup, startup raising over $2 million in seed capital. He's done consulting work in multiple countries and has addressed audiences worldwide on science, technology, economic development, and competitiveness. His recent journal articles have included Reinventing Competitiveness, the case for a national manufacturing foundation. He holds an MA with honors in international economics from the Johns Hopkins University and a BA magnum cum laude in economics from Davidson College. Gentlemen, a hearty welcome to you, to the show to both of you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Well, let me let me just start with you. Um, whenever we you know base our show on a, and, and I you know one of the things I do for my audience is I keep up with writing and research because often. Um, with a very dynamic kind of research that's done in this area, the latest article, the latest published paper is often uh, good seed capital for my show. So, but obviously, I, I'm, a fair number of listeners have probably read the November 16th Wall Street Journal article. Some have not. So, Sridhar, I'm going to ask you to start in the November in your November 16th Wall Street Journal article that you, um, you know, co-authored with Tom. You both argue that production offshoring by U.S. manufacturers has been eroding the U.S. industrial ecosystem with significant consequences for U.S. innovation capacity. I'm going to ask you, just for our listening audience who may not have seen the, uh, the op-ed, please summarize the argument. 
So uh, let me start by first defining what innovation is, because we often get confused. You know, when you invest in R&D, what you get is groundbreaking, groundbreaking scientific discoveries and engineering inventions. Now, taking a promising engineering invention and converting that into a product or a process at scale to meet some societal need, that process is really the innovation part. And we're talking about hardware innovation in, uh, here right now. So from that point of view, we haven't done, we are not doing much of hardware innovation in this country anymore. In fact, uh, I would like you to think of innovation cycle as a baseball diamond. So getting to the first base begins with investments in basic research, and that gives you the promising discoveries and inventions. Only a small set of those are worthwhile transitioning to the next phase. Uh, and so you get to the second base that involves actually investing in translational research, engineering, R&D, and prototyping. It bends scale, you know, prototypes. Then only a small fraction of those will go to the third base where you're actually transitioning to pilot production. Uh, that's where you have to come up with the real process innovations and how to manufacture these products at scale, cost-effectively, reliably, safely. And then, of course, you go home base, you know, by after overcoming these full-scale manufacturing challenges. And that step, again, generates inventions that trigger further discoveries and new products as the cycle continues. What we've been doing for the last 30 years or so we are living in this mantra of uh, invent here, manufacture there. So we are still the, probably the best in the world when getting, in terms of getting to the first base in doing the scientific discoveries and inventions. But we are not doing much beyond that. In, in some cases, we do go to um, um, second base, but that's about it. i give one quick real example. There's a study done by uh, MIT they actually studied 150 hardware startups, um, and uh, this was 10 years ago. And um, it turned out, you know, they, they raised a lot of money for the hardware startups, but then none of them scaled in this country. And whoever scaled, they all went overseas. 70% of them scaled in China. And the reason for that is not only lack of investment, more importantly, lack of engineering skills and manufacturing know-how. The same thing we are seeing as we went around the country to have this roundtable discussions, an example like in Texas. You know, they, they were funded at UT Austin. They were funded by DARPA, by Commerce Department, by National Science Foundation on nanotechnology. They finally came up with a really cool idea for nanoimprint technology. And then when it's time to go to pilot production and, and then mature the technology further, there is no funding available. And uh, none of our companies uh, were interested because they're very short-term focused. Um, Canon from Japan, they took the risk and they invested $10 million in further maturing the technology. We met with both parties and asked, why, now they're manufacturing in Japan. I said, why couldn't you manufacture here in the U.S.? They explain very clearly how we don't have the engineering skills or the manufacturing know-how or the infrastructure, the precision machinery to manufacture here. That's just one story. There are many like that. So we are, by you know, the inventing here, manufacturing there, we hollowed out our, our core capabilities. 
And now we are innovating there and manufacturing there. Almost 50% of the companies, R&D uh, establishments in China, foreign R&D establishments are from the U.S. companies. And they are not going there just for low cost. They are going there because that's where the manufacturers are, supply chains are, that's where the technical talent is. So that's a dangerous trend, and that's what we, we talk about, not only admiring the problem, which not just us, people have been admiring this for a couple of decades now, but we also offer some solutions if some, uh, in terms of how to rebuild our capacity to innovate. Tom, if I'm understanding uh, the article that you and Fred Hart wrote, and, and you're thinking correctly, you both are assuming that U.S.-based manufacturers are moving production and ultimately various components of innovation offshore for cost and efficiency reasons. But in most cases, the location decisions are not so much for cost and efficiency, but rather to sell into local markets. Now, here's my question from the point of view of the U.S. manufacturer, with the U.S.-based manufacturer. With emerging economies creating powerful new sources of consumer and business demand, don't we want U.S. manufacturers to capitalize on this growing potential, and therefore we should understand their desire to have the presence in the growing market and therefore be able to sell into the growing market? Well, the, the short answer to that, Cliff, is, is yes. And uh, a global manufacturing environment is is what we have. And we certainly want U.S. manufacturers to do whatever it takes to participate in growing foreign markets. But we're, we've moved beyond the point where U.S. manufacturers are moving production offshore. It's already left for the most part. Whole industries, whole supply chains are gone. And in many cases, it, is, it has not been to have access to those foreign markets, but it has been, particularly in the case of China, to uh, have access to low costs. I mean, it started with low-skill, high-labor content industries, and the assumption back in the day is that those low-cost, uh, low-skill industries would move offshore, and the U.S. manufacturing sector would focus on advanced technologies and the high-value products. And while that is true, to a certain extent, we did not predict the extent to which high-value, high-skilled uh, industries and production would also move offshore. We did not predict how rapidly the supply chains, the technical skills, the whole integrated production system would develop in China that makes it in many cases, almost irresistible uh, to move production offshore. So some of it is for access to markets, and that's been going on for centuries, really. So certainly, uh, you know, that the, the first example that comes to mind is that it, it did not take long for Henry Ford to put a factory in Europe to access that market. But that said, we have lost a significant part of our uh, high-skilled industri industries, and at some point, the U.S. needs to export, needs to export more than we do because we simply can't afford 
to continue to have multi-hundred billion dollar trade deficits for the you know, foreseeable future. Tom, I'm going to stick with you for this, this next question because in a way it follows up from, from the discussion that you started here. While you mm-hmm. and Sridhar cite a 2015 study in your Wall Street Journal op-ed, there has been some debate about innovation following production as an empirical question. But I, 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 I'm not going to argue empirics here. I, I, I do think that it needs to be fleshed out in the literature. Tom, what I'm going to ask you is, could this this disturbing phenomenon of innovation floating offshore with production very well be changing in this period of revolution for the economics and physics of the manufacturing supply chain? Isn't digitization going to make the the, um, physical proximity of innovation and design to production less necessary and in some ways even less desirable? Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure if I quite go that far, but I do agree, Cliff, that uh, the changes in production technologies and the digitization, smart manufacturing industry 4.0 will change. Already has started to change in in some cases. Uh, the the economics of uh, where things are produced, how they're produced, um, the the term you see frequently, mass customization. Uh, is something that the technology enables and will also uh, lend itself to more uh, proximate location decisions for uh, production decisions. Um, we and and in you know we didn't really have in a 2,000 word article we didn't have room to get into it, but in some of the other reports that we've written based on this, we we have argued that. This shift in technology does provide an opportunity for uh, U.S. the U.S. to rebuild supply chains, rebuild uh, local production facilities. But that said, uh, there's uh, from everything we've seen and people we've talked to, uh, U.S. companies are already falling behind on implementing these Industry 4.0 technologies. So. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, even to take advantage of these technological shifts. Sridhar, in thinking about the, the global system as, as, as of 2019 as a whole, I'm going to ask you, what about the other side of the ledger? Doesn't the U.S. get some inbound – you're talking about outbound troubling tr- trends. I'm going to ask you, doesn't the U.S. get some inbound benefit from a mobile world? And a good example would be the German oilmakers in the U.S. southeast. If your thesis about the propensity of innovation to phys- and innovation and design to physically follow production is correct, doesn't the U.S. benefit from investments brought to our shores by foreign companies? Absolutely. Um, it's not only the German uh, manu- auto manufacturing, but South East, you know, you know Toyotas and Hondas. They are here, um, like you said, BMW. So these companies, um, let me just go back to one more point. Yes, they are not only surviving here, they are thriving here. And good for them, good for us. They are creating manufacturing jobs, no question about it. And we should encourage that. But if you look at a broader picture, 
particularly Germany, Japan, and South Korea, these are not low-wage countries. You know, our multinational co corporations are happy to run overseas and manufacture for whatever reasons. For all that, it's not low cost. In fact, these countries, they are, they are not low-wage countries. Their wages are higher, their taxes are higher, their regulations are stricter or just as strict as here, and they have significantly higher levels of automation. And yet they have a very strong manufacturing base in their home countries, and they are um, investing in their innovation ecosystem there, and they have significant trade surpluses in manufacturing, and they all, all these three countries, weathered China's threat far better than we did. And so when these companies come here and create, you know, establish manufacturing facilities, like I said, that's a good thing. But we need to focus also on our small and medium-sized manufacturers who constitute nearly, you know, 95% of our manufacturing firms, right? And they need um, help. They need help from the federal government. Um, going back to what Tom pointed out about the Industry 4.0, this is where the, the federal government has a role to play in enabling our small and medium-sized companies to embrace this new technology, upgrade their equipment, because they are the backbone. If we strengthen those, then we'll have more of these foreign uh, multinationals come here and create manufacturing jobs. Mm. But, but on the innovation side, I gave an example on the, on the nanotechnology. There are other examples, too, but it, since I already gave that example, Canon, they, 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 they tried. They, they, they said they cannot manufacture these nanotechnology in this country. We just eroded our industrial commons here. We eroded our engineering skills. So that's where we need to invest. If we make those long-term strategic investments, uh, we can certainly see, you know, see <clears throat> the entrepreneurship and creativity is still is in our collective DNA. We're still the best, one of the best in the world, if not the best. So we need a, we are the only country without a national strategy, a long-term strategy, what to do with our own good ideas. Now, like I said, think about computers, cell phones, lithium-ion batteries, solar cells, flexible flat panel displays. We we, they were largely invented here, and uh, of course, you could, of course, we created the knowledge, but not the national wealth. Think about how many millions of jobs those technologies have created overseas. Now that we we chose not to manufacture flat panel displays in the 90s, now the next generation technology, flexible displays, particularly the large area flexible displays. We are unable to manufacture them today here. So going back to your point about, you know, the foreign multinationals coming here, that is a very good thing. In fact, we talk about, uh, you know, when we invest and taxpayers are investing in federal R&D, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. We want to make sure those technologies are scaled here, at least 75% of value added here. And it doesn't matter whether it is the company that scales it, whether it is headquartered in, in the U.S. or overseas, as long as it's scaled in this country. Because that's how you, you continue the cycle of innovation. You manufacture, you learn from, you learn by doing the, the manufacturing, and then that leads to newer innovations and newer products. 
Chris, Sweetheart, Chris, I'm going to push. Chris, before we, before we move on, can I just throw in a couple more things about this, this question of foreign direct investment? Sure. And, and that is that uh, the, the last – this is going to get a little wonky, but the, the last years I saw were 2015 and 2016, which were the largest on record $450 billion of foreign direct investment in the U.S., and 70% of that was in manufacturing. Now, a, a, the largest chunk of that is acquisitions of existing plants, but some significant amount is, is greenfield investment as well. The, these, right. In general, these foreign affiliates uh, spend more on R&D than domestic companies do. They also uh, pay more than domestic companies do. So it's a manufacturing company. So, and they account for about 20% of manufacturing employment in the U.S. So we're, uh, we certainly endorse continued foreign direct investment in the U.S. It's a very positive thing for our manufacturing sector. Well, let, let me push the question even further, and I'd like to hear uh, thoughts from both of you on, on this one because we had a great discussion on foreign direct investment. But this, converse, this critical conversation is always phrased in terms of activity, quote-unquote, here versus activity, quote-unquote, there, but in in the many years that I've been studying um, the manufacturing sector, the word multi-country keeps flashing in front of me. So, extending my previous question, aren't global multi-country supply chains the reality of ma- modern manufacturing, and especially with the kind of very you know innovation-intensive business machinery? that the U.S. manufacturing sector is competitive in. Don't we often have, we keep talking about country A versus country B, but very often don't we have supply chains that run through, you know, 11 or 12 different countries, depending on the sophistication of the product? So that that further, you know, sort of throws the, the paradigm into turmoil, doesn't it? I'd like to hear from both of you on this. You want to go first, sir, guys? I'll take it if not. Um, well, well, Cliff, I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite sure what innovation-intensive business machinery means. To if from if that means, for instance, that U.S. companies uh, are very good at managing based on financial metrics uh, that dominate their location decisions, their cost decisions, their production decisions. Uh, for quarterly profits, then yes, the U.S. is very good at that, and that has been a factor in driving globalization. What we see in the U.S. that we do not see in Germany, Japan, and other developed countries is what has become almost a a wholesale um, shifting of production and integrated supply chains offshore. And it results in uh, lost capabilities, dependencies, for instance, in the defense industrial base that are really concerning to the Department of Defense, and an inability to uh, to make the next big products that emerge from our huge investment in R&D. And if you can't generate products and profit and value and jobs and national security from the results 
of this R&D, and A, we're, we're not getting the kind of return on investment on that R&D that we should do as a, company, as a country, and B, it's not going to take too long before the policymakers figure this out, and the investment in R&D is going to start going down. Okay. So, <clears throat> yes, it's, it's a multinational supply chain, but um, that is true. Um, but what's our competitive advantage? What is it that we are good at? Um, what happened with American ingenuity that created the arsenals of democracy 70 years ago? And how did we get to this stage now? We hollowed out our, our basic capabilities, foundational capabilities. We decimated the Midwest and beyond. And so is our competitive advantage just coming up with ideas and then let, you know, multinational supply chains um, participate, understandably, in creating the product, and then we just go buy them, then how are we going to create national wealth that way, unless you manufacture? That's one way to create national wealth. And we should be, we should be uh, having an advantage in certain sectors, at least. Um, that, that just one example I give you, the aerospace industry. Uh, we are good at that. We are, we are good in aviation. We are good. We have very. That's one sector where we have a high. Um, you know, we have positive trade balance, and uh, we are very strong in that still. Um, but also think about it. The government plays an important role in aerospace. They not only invest in basic R and D, but the translational R and D, applied R and D, in demonstration, in deployment, um, in procurement and sometimes even helps with sales and marketing. Now, so that's a good thing because we have a um, very healthy aerospace sector. So we need to identify what sectors that we should be good at and have a strategy and have a long-term commitment because the private sector, <clears throat> the magic hand of free market has spoken for three decades in loud and clear. And we know where we are now with that. We got trillion dollar deficits in manufacturing. Not that we had to manufacture everything. How could we have you know, we invest hundred and fifty billion dollars a year in science and technology? How could you continue to have at the end of the year hundred billion dollar deficit in advanced technology products? There were I think it was twenty twelve report by Senator Armed Services Committee that quoted something like uh, about a million counterfeit parts in our in our military supply chain, uh, in defense critical items. How did we get to that stage? So, yes, there are multinational supply chains. What is our role in that uh, is, is the question. That's the, you know, the private sector uh, is fixated by, you know, quarterly shareholder profits, and the public sector cannot think beyond November elections. That's not a good thing. In their Wall Street Journal article, Sridhar and Tom gave give a list of very specific policy pro proposals to address this concern, and, and I, I, I applaud both of you for doing that. People often do not give policy specifics. You did. So in these last three questions, I am going to, um, to, add, to address uh, policy proposal issues based on what is in your Wall Street Journal article. Tom. In your list of policy proposals in the article, 
I could have mentioned, I could have missed it, but you don't mention anything about stimulating a greater rate of U.S. manufacturing entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship has been sluggish, let's say, since the late 1990s. It's come back a little lately, but not much. So I'm going to ask you, Tom, isn't the weakness in manufacturing startups in the U.S. Real, a, a very much a part of this story, both from a jobs perspective and an innovation perspective? We worry about losing to offshoring, but I, I, I don't think we're worried enough about not starting, not innovating new manufacturing companies in the U.S. I couldn't agree with you more, Cliff. This this is another area where we're victims of a 2,000-word limit. Uh, we, have, we have talked about this issue in our other documents. Uh, we recognize that the vaunted U.S. venture capital uh, system does not fund manufacturing companies to any great extent. Most of it goes to software and uh, biotech-type companies. Um, as Sridhar mentioned, the a study that was done by MIT of the startups that emerged from technology that was licensed from MIT that ended up uh, either never getting to a, a ramp-up phase because the funding was not available, or when they did scale up, they did it overseas. And in many cases, when VCs do invest in hardware startups, they you know they they tend to have a timeline, and when it comes time for production uh, scale up, they push these startups uh, to go to China because, of course, that's that's where you do manufacture. Uh, and and so that that is a problem that we we recognize. Now we we highlighted a few uh, state programs that have uh, in in some cases some fairly clever ways to. Uh, raise funding and, and direct funding towards hardware technology startups. Um, and we, we have also talked about the need to, uh, to fill this gap in VC funding to uh, investigate ways to, to come up with public-private uh, investment funds that would be devoted to uh, manufacturing startups that would have a, a sufficient amount of capital because manufacturing businesses tend to be more expensive than software businesses and would also have uh, the right kind of uh, patience and timeline uh, that would uh, help these small companies. We also talk about the need for uh, procurement contracts that can help uh, smaller uh, new manufacturing companies uh, ramp up production and use a procurement contract to uh, get bank financing, for instance, um, to allow them to, to ramp up and, and begin to build a market presence and, and shake out the kinks in their production processes. So we're aware of the problem. We've made some, suggested some ways that it might be addressed, uh, but like everything else in this area, it's complicated. Hmm. Sridhar, let, let's talk about um, federal versus state. I've I believe that a lot of people in reading policy suggestions and reading you know, policy analyses, particularly in the media, they tend to think of policy, the federal government as being you know, the key policy player, the key policy generator. But I'm going to ask, is the federal government the key policy player in solving the concern that you 
raise about offshoring and innovation. Don't the states, the state governments, have a sizable role to play given your desire to see more industrial clusters, which, after all, are regional entities? So talk to me about the role of the states in solving these problems. Okay. So let me back up a little bit and go back to um, the points that uh, Tom made in addition to the specific measures to 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 uh, um, accelerate uh, creation of ramp-ups and, and, and scale-ups. It goes back to where the federal government, first of all, is, you know, invest, like I said, $150 billion of taxpayer dollars in R&D. And one thing I want to say is that R&D, first of all, comes in many flavors. R&D is a basic research, and then what industry does is applied research, which is mostly for making the current product better, faster, cheaper, lighter, and, and, and rightly so, to, to be competitive. But what we are missing is how do you go from the first base to third base? That, that's, that how do you go the good idea and then bringing all the way to manufacturing. That innovation part, that requires a translational R&D. And in that regard, where we have, the states have an important role to play in, in collaboration with the federal government, and where to do that in, in the innovation clusters or innovation hubs, whatever you call it, we make a specific recommendation about creating what's called translational research centers. This is, could be affiliated with universities uh, who do a lot of very good research uh, uh, in science and technology, but going beyond just publications, but actually to promote startups, create these translational centers um, at universities and other national labs uh, so to promote startups. That's where the state government can uh, play an important role, but we still need a national policy and a commitment um, and long-term investment that flows to states, to state governments, and they can, so they can do the cost sharing and, and, uh, and create these startups. And as Tom mentioned, once you have that, then, of course, you can leverage the defense procurement to create pilot production. And then, then you can, of course, when it comes to scale up, that requires many billions of dollars. Again, government, state or federal, is not going to invest all of it. We need to create um, public-private investment funds, as Tom pointed out. And some states are doing that, um, um, like South Carolina and others are, are, have some good programs. And those the kind of things we need to scale nationwide. Final question for our guests today, and I'd like to hear um, some thoughts from both of you uh, on this. You suggest in your article in the policy suggestion section that any licensee of federally funded research results should be required to manufacture at least 75% of the resulting value added in the U.S. My question, first for Tom, then for Sridhart, isn't that going to put, uh, you know, you, we talk about unintended consequences in economic policy realm. Isn't that going to put a damper on incentives to innovate with such a, a restrictive cap on the return on these investments? Well, you got to remember, Cliff, that we are talking here about uh, the discoveries, inventions that result from federally 
funded R&D. There are already uh, restrictions in licensing to foreign entities of the results of federal funded R&D in the Bayh-Dole but but waivers can be requested and are routinely granted by the different funding agencies. So uh, there's already this idea that if it's fairly funded, the results should be made here. What? But it has no teeth. We're suggesting that it be given teeth. And if and if you don't want to do that, you as a company who wants then then don't license the technology. Don't you know find your technology someplace else. The other part of that is if the the steps that we've talked about in terms of, for instance, the, these translational research centers that Trito was just talking about, if if those were put in place, then many of these manufacturable technologies would be taken even further along the, the I'll call it the product development cycle, um, and and be even more ready for commercial production after they're released or after the TRCs have, have done their thing to them. So if, if you're going to do all these other steps that we encourage to uh, to bring more of these technologies to market for, and these are, you know, to create the industries of the future here in the U.S., then continuing to allow those to leak overseas where foreign companies essentially are are able to pick our winners where, where we do not, uh, we're, we're only going to make the problem worse. Okay. So that's, that's what we're thinking about here. So, sure. uh, well, uh, I think Tom said much of what I, what I was going to say, but, but I want to say, what's the alternative? We're going to continue to create great ideas and then watch them scale overseas, and we just go buy them. What, what's the alternative? Because we, we, the taxpayers who are funding all of this R&D, I think it's not much to ask that they get a return on their investment. We look for a return on our investments and in our retirement accounts and what have you. Uh, it's, it's, so if it's going to mention about how it's going to curtail innovation, um, well, if, if it's privately funded R&D, sure, they can go wherever they want. That's, that's free country. But if it's federally funded, uh, it should be scaled here. Then if, if we have some obstacles along the way that certain things cannot be scaled here, then we need to address that at that time to see how can we establish those capabilities and the capacities here. So that's how we build. So it's not about bringing back lost industries. That's not going to happen. It's about rebuilding our lost capabilities. So that's the place to start. Uh, otherwise, we'll continue to, you know, like I already gave examples of, you know, all the things from solar cells and lithium-ion batteries invented here, manufactured there. And, and so we will continue down that path. Otherwise, you know, right now, what hardware industries of the future are we really going to establish in this country? And we let alone lead. Uh, back 20, 30 years ago, you know, whether you think about robots and MRI machines and, and machine tools invented here, it took about a decade or so before we transitioned the manufacturing slowly to other countries. 
And then as you come to computers and, and, and lithium-ion batteries, we hardly did any manufacturing here before it went. And now, even right out of the gate, coming out of research labs, it's directly going overseas. The, the thought about creating national wealth and even more important than national security. We need to be making advanced technology products here to do both, to create wealth and security. Uh, so. Uh, so we can get a return on our investments. Tom Mahoney, Sridhar Koda, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Congratulations on your important Wall Street Journal article, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Cliff. Thanks thank for having us. Really appreciate it. Gentlemen, thank you, Cliff. you have set the tone for the number of shows that we are going to do into the new year. I'll be talking about my 2020 plans for manufacturing matters, but certainly issues of global competitiveness in a time of rapid technological change are going to ensure that some of the topics I spoke about with my distinguished guests today are going to propel us and propel our discussions in the new year. Until next time, this is Cliff Wallman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.